I'm excited to dive back into our study that we began just a few weeks ago. Encountering the voice of God is what we're talking about here. We're using the Hebrew word selah, a word that's got a mysterious meaning. It appears in the book of Psalms. What does it mean? Let's look at our key passage Uh, Psalm 62, 5 through 8. We're just going to read that together because in this passage, we see this word that crops up sporadically in the Psalms of David, Selah. It appears alongside the text and uh, scholars don't really agree on what all it means. Some think it's a musical instruction, like you're reading a piece of notated music and there you'll find a rest And you will take a breath. You'll pause right there when you see that instruction. Some say, well, it's not a musical instruction. It's it's not musical. It's textual. It has something to do with the words that have just been said. It's an instruction to pause and reflect, to think on what was just said. We're using it in the form of an acronym. We're, we're, We're using it to think about five what we have called postures of the heart, unique heart postures that help us encounter the voice of God, to perceive it, to understand it, to respond to it. Let's look at this passage together because I believe all five postures are represented in Psalm 62, uh, 5 through 8. It says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And there we see that word that we're using to indicate five attitudes for encountering the voice of God. Here's what the acronym is and the postures that it represents. We've talked about silence, expectation, listening, adoration, and heart cry. And we did an overview of all five of those just a couple weeks ago, sort of a jet tour through Selah. Now we're going to go through them one posture at a time. We're going to take a week and we're going to look at a different heart posture and so over the next, it's, it's really six weeks because the final heart posture of heart cry, there are actually, as you will see, four types of heart cry. We're going to take two per week and look at that. But tonight, we're going to begin with the heart posture of silence. So as it begins, it says to wait in silence. Oh, my soul, wait in silence. We said a few weeks ago, sometimes God just wants you to shut up. You know, sometimes you just need to pipe down. We cited passages like Ecclesiastes in support of that idea, which says there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. We talked about in the incident of uh, Joshua, where God says, be still, I will go, I will fight for you, you need only be silent. And this is a novel concept, silence in a world that's full of noise. There is virtually no sense of quiet in our lives, our waking hours are chock full of noise. We awaken to the, the sound of a, an alarm, ah, 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 right? Or, or maybe a, a radio or some such. And then we, we get ready for our day. We shower, we shave to the sound of the news. Or maybe we put an earpiece in, we listen to a podcast, and we load the kids up into the car, and we fight traffic to drop them off at school, and they're clamoring in the back seat, you know? And maybe you're listening to the radio on the way, and there's cars honking their horns, 
and you finally do your drop off and then you go to your destination for the day, your job site, your workplace, your office, your school, what have you. At the end of the day, after a, a cacophony of noise throughout your day, you finally get back in your car and you head out into traffic once again and you're bombarded with the senses and the noises of that experience as you listen to the rush hour news and you finally make it home and you open your door and there's screaming kids and there's barking dogs and a nagging sometimes spouse and <laughs> or maybe you're the nagging spouse you know I'm leaving myself a little out there and then you collapse on the sofa in front of the tube there and you might drift away to the noise surrounding you and if you're lucky enough to stay awake until you lay your head down on your pillow when you're trying to get some sleep that night you can't why because all the noises of the day are on repeat on an endless loop in your brain and it never goes away it's constant disruption. And I want to submit something to you in your notes that silence is disruptive. Silence is disruptive to your soul, but in a positive way. You see, we think of noise as being disruptive. Well, there's nothing more disruptive than silence. Uh, we've gotten used to the noise. That's why silence is disruptive to us. Noise has become the norm. Did you know that noise is the default position? Heck, most of us can't even get to sleep without noise. The last thing I say every night before I go to bed is, Alexa, brown noise, right? And so my little device turns on. You get white noise or you get brown noise. I can't sleep without, you know? Some of you have to have a fan going in order to go to sleep. We have now created an audio background for ourselves so that we can rest. Imagine that. We need noise to rest. That's because it's become the norm. And that's why when God says, be still, it's disruptive. It's unsettling. It's uncomfortable. You say silence is, is disruptive? Well, let's just see, shall we? You see what I'm saying? Some of you couldn't even make it. You start yakking. I can hear you. You're out there. You're doing some nervous chuckling. <laughs> you know, it's, it's disruptive. It's unsettling. It's awkward. But it's necessary. It's necessary. Silence helps us know three things I want to tell you. First of all, in your notes, silence helps us know his presence. His presence. Here's what Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God wants us to acknowledge his greatness, that he is God. That's all. He just wants us to acknowledge him. After all, there's a lot about God that, that there, to be impressed by, isn't there? I mean, when you think about it, he's a wonderful maker. He's a wonderful creator. That's an understatement. I used to live in Southern California. We lived a mile from the ocean. We moved there from the south, and when we first began to live there, every chance we got, we were at the beach. We could, we could walk there, and I would just behold the mighty roar of, of uh, the Pacific, and it was incredible, you know? And, and I, just, uh, I just remember 
going there as often as I could. No matter what kind of a day I'd had, I could take the 101 home from work and everything would be made well But by looking at his creation. But you know what? The longer we lived there, the less often we went to the beach. It was just true, you know? We just kind of, we were like, oh, yeah, the ocean is here. People come visit us. They're like, can we go to the beach? And we're like, ah, you know, okay, all right. And we'd go, and it kind of got to be routine. It's like we've seen it all before, you know? Why is that? When you're a child, you're, you're impressed. You're amazed by things. I remember when my kids were little, they were amazed by me. Not so much anymore. When they were little, you know, we'd go to a restaurant, I'd stick the straws up my nose, do my walrus impersonation, and they'd bust a gut. <laughs> you know, now I do it, and they're like, well, Dad, you've gone off your meds, you know. <laughs> it's not a big deal. How do we recapture the wonder that we once had? Matthew 18, 2 through 4, Jesus calls a child over. He says, after he calls it, he puts, it in the midst of, puts him in the midst of them. He says, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Why, what is it that makes a child great in this context? It's their dependence. I remember an old John Wayne movie, The Alamo, where the Duke, he plays Davy Crockett. And there's a scene where he encounters a charming child. And he utters this phrase. He says, don't you love kids? Isn't it a shame kids have to grow up to be people? You know. <laughs> but we do. And we lose something. We need to marvel and long for the Lord's presence. Children are very interested in the presence of their parents. I got a little one right now. She's had covid and my wife has been home with her all week long. She needs mom, right? But in general, kids just want the presence of their parents. My youngest children, every night at bedtime, they ask me if I can just come and lay down with them just for a few minutes. They just want to know that I'm there. And so we need to retain some kind of a dependence, a longing, an appreciation for the presence of God. And we, we get that in the beginning when we grasp the concept of grace and grace, above all, ought to keep us perpetually in awe. But as the years go by, if we're not careful, our faith can just become some doctrinal worldview, some system of belief. And the relationship part goes south. And the whole notion of his presence just kind of slips by us. And uh, we need to understand that as Christians, we, we got to let go of this mentality that we fall into where it's, it's no longer a grace-oriented perspective. And if we're not careful, we can move right out of grace into works. And our, it affects our prayer life and how we interact with God. Grace is what keeps your interaction with God on the level of encounter and of appreciation and awe and reverence and being still before him. When you slip into a works-based mindset, you get very busy. You get very active. It becomes more about you. And it's not relying on him, and it becomes about doing. It's just do, 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 do. I had a former pastor who said, when your faith is just do, 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 all you get is do, do. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. And you won't either. But you know what? When we get away from do, 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 then your prayer life becomes more than just talk, talk, talk. Because here's the deal. 
Sometimes when we pray, we just put the focus back on us. I want you to jot this down in your notes. Prayer isn't only talking to God or even with God. Often it's just silently acknowledging God. How often do you do that? Our default is when we pray, we just start yapping. We just start talking, you know? Have you ever spent time in prayer with God where you're not saying a blessed thing? You're just acknowledging him. You're just acknowledging his greatness. Psalm 131, two. But I've calmed and quieted my soul, says the psalmist, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. David's like, I'm like a baby in the arms of his mother. We've got to become less dependent on self, more desirous of the presence of God. That's the first thing silence helps us to know. Number two, silence helps us to know his power. His power. I'm getting alliterative. Like any good pastor on you tonight. I'm giving you the P words. Presence. Power. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Paul's like, you know, if, if my weakness equals Christ's strength, boy, am I in luck. I am a weak man. I am a weak. I think the alternative title for this epistle of Paul would be Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And he wouldn't have any problem with that because my weakness is Christ's strength. And so the message of Scripture to us, when life gets busy, even when life gets hostile, even when there are pressures that mount, even when crisis uh, erupts in front of you, we have this posture of silence before the Lord that we can slip into where we have a sense of calm. I have calmed my soul. I have quieted my soul. Therefore, I will not blink when life gets crazy. I will not flinch. I'm a red-blooded American male, and as such, I have a list of the favorite movies. Right? Every, every guy's got his list of favorite movies, and usually on that list are Saving Private Ryan, Tombstone, Gladiator, and Braveheart, okay? Now, maybe that's not your list. It ought to be. Anyway, Braveheart has a scene in it where the main character, William Wallace, the protagonist, he comes home to his boyhood village in Scotland there, and he arrives in time for some wedding festivities, and he catches up with an old boyhood chum of his named Hamish. And Hamish is no longer a wee lad. He's grown into a mountain of a man. And there's a little bit of an ego match between them. And Amish challenges Wallace to a contest whereby the victor would hurl a massive stone the furthest. And begrudgingly, Wallace enters into this contest and they square off. And predictably, Amish throws his stone further than Wallace. But then Wallace, ever cocky, says to him, That's a good throw. But I wonder, could you make the same throw in battle? Could you crush a man with that throw? Amish kind of bulls up, gets in his face. He says, I could crush you like a worm. That was worm, in case you didn't know. And the crowd starts to get involved. They're like, do it, do it. You know, they want to see a man get crushed like a worm, you know. 
And so, uh, because what the movie teaches us is that Scottish people are really bloodthirsty. And so, <laughs> Wallace takes his spot. Amish is over here. Amish says, eh, you'll move. He says, I will not do your worst. He takes the rock, big heavy rock, summons all his strength, hurls it with all his might. Wallace never even blinks. Stands still as a stone, watches that rock sail high over his shoulder and it thuds way back here. And then he picks up a rock and chucks it at Amish, hits him right between the eyes. They stay friends. Why didn't Wallace flinch? Why didn't he blink? Because of what he knew. What he knew about his opponent. He knew Amish would put all of his concentration into distance, not accuracy. When you and I are in life and everything is going nonstop and, and it begins to churn into a swirling eddy and we got rocks coming at us from all quarters, we can Stand there and not blink, not flinch, quiet our soul. Why? Because of what we know. Not about our opponent, not about our circumstances, not about ourselves, not about rocks, but about our God. About our God. And we keep our eyes on him. And so when we're in the middle of all of that, we know that our weakness means his strength is perfect. Jot this down. In the face of adversity, we can be calm and still because of what we know about God. Next trial you're in, you just think, what do I know about God? What are his promises to me? What is true of God? What do I need to know is true about God while I go through this? Third thing silence helps us to know is his provision. His provision. This is not about us. It's about him. Uh, before Jesus' public ministry began, uh, the one making all the commotion in the Judean region was John the Baptist. He was baptizing people in the Jordan River. It was a baptism of repentance and of preparation. He was there to point people to the coming Messiah. And then that Messiah steps on the scene. And Jesus begins his public ministry. And he starts baptizing in the Jordan. And his followers start to accumulate. And so the followers of John start to notice that there are more people flocking around this carpenter from Nazareth. And that bothers them. And they go to John and they go, look, this man that you were talking to the other day, now everybody is going to him. And what is John's response? His response is to simply say, look, I was never going to be the centerpiece of this. I, I, I told the Pharisees, I'm not the Christ. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoe. I'm here to cry out a voice in the wilderness pointing people to that Messiah. And here's what he says in John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so a spirit of stillness and of silence before God, that is the posture of someone who is decreasing so that Christ will enlarge. And that is antithetical. Decreasing is antithetical to advancement in the logic of the world. John had no problem with that. He understood who Jesus was. He understood who he himself was. He understood what God wanted to do. And he understood what God wanted to do, what that would require of him. He would shrink. We need that kind of perspective because here's something for you to jot down. Our potential begins to grow as we learn to rest in his arms. Your stillness is key to your growth. Sometimes we think we got to give God something to work with. God needs something to work with, you know? Uh, it's really dependent on me to provide for God 
something so that he can accomplish his goals through me. Not exactly. Is that the lesson of the Bible? I think not. I want you to see this as well in your notes. The common denominator of all the people God uses is not their strength. I don't care who you're talking about in Scripture. Paul, David, Peter, Moses, Joseph, Daniel, Abraham. You know what the common denominator between all those guys is? It's not their strength. It's their availability. Their availability. God is a creator. He creates. And he doesn't need anything from you to create except your availability. Uh, we're studying Genesis on Sunday mornings. When we began in Genesis 1-1, that's the creation account right there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, okay? What did he create them out of? Nothing. He created them out of nothing. We believe in an ex nihilo creation. Ex nihilo is a Latin phrase, means out of nothing. And so, what was going on before creation? He created the earth, the universe, the, the stars, all of that, the angels, okay? Prior to all that, what did we have? What was there before the earth, the universe, the angelic realm, all of that? There was just God. There was just God. He has always just been. He is the uncreated one. He simply exists. He's the great I am. And if you have a hard time being still... You ponder that thought for a while. Ponder what it was like before all of this. It was just God. That'll shut you up when you ponder that. God operated in the vast silence of eternity. And here's what I want you to see in your notes. Silence is prelude to creation. Stillness is a blank canvas for God to do a masterpiece on. When we meet with God, we acknowledge him and his greatness, we stop yakking, we're still, then he can say and do what he wants to say and do. So we need an ex nihilo faith. I'm gonna clear, I'm gonna clear my agenda. I'm gonna clear the runway. I'm gonna let God launch what God wants to launch. It's not easy. Because silence does make us uncomfortable. A spirit of being still is not our bent. We like to default to what we know. We want to come up with our own solutions. But silence is worth it. Stillness is worth it. One of the most simultaneously rewarding and awkward experiences in worship that I've ever had was in San Diego. I had uh, moved to San Diego from the south. I had previously been a worship pastor at a rather large church. And uh, it's a long story, but I ended up at a very small church in San Diego, California. And uh, I'd come from a background in worship ministry where a strong worship ministry meant that you had a big choir, a big orchestra, a big praise band, some praise singers with matching attire, and he had lots of equipment and a great facility and smoke and lights and all that stuff. And I'm not knocking any of that because we use a lot of those elements here. But I came from that world into this little bitty world. I went from leading thousands on the weekend in worship to leading dozens. I, I think a good Sunday would have been 80 for us. And I remember my very first Sunday in that little church in San Diego. And I went to the lead pastor in advance as I was planning my set. And I said, uh, 
give, me, give me some cues here. What would you like in the worship? How should I plan? How long should I plan for? He said, do whatever the Lord leads you to do. Now, my worship pastor just woke up over here, wherever, wherever Daniel is. He's like, oh, that sounds interesting. Do what I can. Calm down, buddy. Anyway, I, I thought, okay, okay. So I planned what I felt was an ample amount of music. And so Sunday comes, my first day, and I'm at the keyboard. I'm leading from the keys. I got the band going. I got a couple of singers. The people are there. The spirit is wonderful. It's very warm and inviting in there. Everybody is engaged. Voices are lifted. Hands are lifted. I mean, we're all on the bus. God's driving the bus. We don't want to get off the bus. And we go through this worship set, and it's got peaks and valleys, and you know. And we're finally we're 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 bringing it home. We're on the last song. It's a song I distinctly remember about uh, God speaking through His Word, and we sing that last chorus, and we hit the crescendos and all that. And then we bring it down, and there's a flourish on the drums, and I hit that final chord on the keys, and our voices ring out that last note. Everybody's eyes are closed because it's very emotional. Finish the song, I lift my hands from the keyboard, I pull back from the microphone, and with eyes still closed, I just wait. And I wait for the pastor at that point on cue to come up, take the stage, and begin the message. And I'm waiting. And I'm waiting. And I don't hear anything. It's just silent. There's a lot of silence. What's going on? I'm getting uncomfortable. And I finally crack one eye open and I see the pastor down here and he's still going like this. I'm going, oh, this is, this is bad. This is bad. This goes against everything I've ever been taught. They're not supposed to be any dead, dead uh, uh, moments on stage. There's not gonna, supposed to be any awkward silences. You got to do something to fill the silence. You know, uh, what's happening? Should I, should I do something? Should I play? God wouldn't let me move my hands. Should I pray? Because that's why you pray, to create a transition. No. I could just sense God saying, you don't move a muscle. This is my time. See, I had come to the end of my prepared worship set. But God wasn't done being worshipped. And so I just felt this sense of peace in that moment come over me. And we went from several seconds of silence into a couple minutes of silence into several minutes of silence. You could hear a pin drop in that room. At most, you could hear a few faint sobs, a few whispered prayers. But it was quiet. And I remember looking around, my father-in-law is here tonight. He was playing bass that morning. And I turned and I saw him on his knees with his hands out to the Lord. And I just, I just started talking to God internally. And after about, I'd say about 10 minutes of stillness, on the front row, a man stood. He had opened the word of God and he read a verse out loud. And then in the back, a lady stood and she read another verse from God's word. And then somebody over here. And then somebody over here. 
And like popcorn, they started popping up, sharing the promises of Christ and of God's word. And it became this very unique moment that only God could create. And then I felt God say, go. And my hands went back to the keyboard. And then I started playing those chords of that chorus that we'd finished singing a moment ago about God speaking. And we all moved right back into worship. It was just the most incredible encounter in worship that I'd ever had. But you know what? I didn't seek that moment. I just availed myself to it through being still before God. So how does that translate into my personal life? How do we do this in our private life? Let's talk now about the practice of silence in your notes. The practice of silence. When you get with God... Number one, be intentional about being alone with God. You make it something intentional. Here's what Mark 135 says. It says, In rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed. Who's he? That's Christ. Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. This was his habit. We see multiple times Christ doing something like this. He got alone, he went away, he got away from the, 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 the busyness. He got away from other people. He got alone with God. And he went to a desolate place, meaning what? He went to a place where he knew he could be alone. He went to a place where there were not going to be distractions. So you got to be intentional about this. Do you have that time with God? Do you have alone time with God? When do you do it? Do you do it in the morning? Some people do because that's what Jesus did. They say, it's good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. I think it's a good idea. I'm not saying you should do it in the morning. I think you should do it when you're at your best. But if you want to be alone with God and you don't want distractions, often morning is your best bet, at least it is in my house. Hard to find a desolate place in the afternoon around the Grim Casa. But you make it something intentional. Secondly, in your notes, clear the mechanism. Clear the mechanism. I love movies. I've already given you one movie illustration. I'll give you another one. By the way, most of my movie illustrations are like from the 90s. You're like, don't you watch any current films? They don't make them any good films anymore. They just don't, right? And uh, I mean, that's just my opinion. But I love sports movies, and the king of sports movies is Kevin Costner. He's been in like 100. One of them is called For Love of the Game, and he plays an aging pitcher named Billy Chappell. And Billy Chappell was once great. Now he's languishing in mediocrity with the Detroit Tigers. And the whole movie takes place with him on the mound at Yankee Stadium. And it's the last game of his career. And he ends up throwing a no-hitter, but, but what he does, his habit is, whenever he hears the heckles and the obscenities being hurled at him by the Bronx faithful, he does this internal thing. There's a phrase that he says to only himself and the audience. He says the words, Clear the mechanism. And then it goes, and there's just this cone of silence. And all of the crowd and the, the noise and the shouts and screams and yells and insults, they all get muted. And all he can see is the batter. And he can zero in his focus. Wouldn't you love to have that power? Go home, you say to the kids, the dog, clear the mechanism. And they just, no. And then you go, it's bedtime, you know. <laughs> we got to clear the... Now, what am I saying? I'm not saying empty your mind. Empty your mind. No, that's, that's, that's Eastern... That's Zen stuff. That's not 
That's not what we're talking about. You don't empty your mind. You, you put away worldly things and you put in godly things. That's clearing the mechanism. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Where do you find these things? In the word of God. So we get alone with God, not to just zen out and om, uh-uh. No. You get away to that desolate place like Christ did, and you think on the things of God. You fill your mind with the things of God. And then number three, don't give God your leftovers. He's a priority, so we build this into our daily routine. we got to make sure that he gets our attention first. Before you enter into this time with him and just come running into his presence, dumping all of your requests on him and your anxieties on him, which, by the way, he's totally ready for, he's not offended by, he wants to hear it, your best habit would be to come in and focus on him first. Give him what he is due. Before you jump into all the stuff, Matthew 6, 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. When you focus on God, by the time you're finished with that season of focusing on God, your troubles probably ain't going to seem so big. And if you're intentional about this, then number four, you're going to learn the importance of reverence. Make it a reverent time. There's reverence here. You don't flippantly rush into God's presence. Habakkuk 2.20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Uh, you're not going to a football game here when you meet with God. There is excitement. There is a, a level of zeal here, but let's face it, face it. He's unfathomable. Someone like that deserves some awe, some reverence, is it intimate? Yes. Is it personal? Yes. Is it relational? Yes. It's not casual. It's not casual. Psalm 89, 7, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. Who's that? Those are the angels. He's greatly to be feared among the angels. The, the New Living Translation says the highest angelic uh, powers stand in awe of God. How awesome above all are those around him. Uh, what does that say if the angels are in awe of, and speechless before him? What does it say about the posture we need to take internally? And it's an internal posture. It's not, it's, not, it's not you getting physically down on your knees. If that helps you, great. That's not what God cares about. He cares about your posture here. And then number five, you use this silence to unify your will with God's will. God is immutable. He is unchangeable, okay? He does not change. But when we enter into his presence with stillness, with reverence, we change. It changes us. I think of the example of Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest. Um, we know him best as the father of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, obviously, according to Jesus, there's no man born among women as great as John the Baptist. He was an important figure. He's the bridge between the Old Testament, New Testament. Zechariah was his father. And he does not play a huge role, Zechariah, in Scripture. But there is one rather interesting story about him. 
Out of the 18,000 priests and Levites of his time, he was the one that was chosen to offer the evening incense at the temple in Jerusalem. It was a great honor. By this point, he was an old man. He'd served his entire life. Now he's got this honor to offer the evening incense. So this is the pinnacle of his career. Little does he know God's got something big for him beyond that. And so one night, he is going through the business of offering the evening incense, his whole purpose for being, he thinks, and he has a visitor. It's an angelic visitor. The angel Gabriel appears to him, I assume in the temple complex, finds him and makes a little announcement to him because here's this man, he is very old, his wife is very old, Elizabeth. The two of them had wanted children, no doubt, but they had not had their prayers answered. They'd never had children. They'd probably given up on that dream. And so here's what the angel says. Luke 1, verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, verse 17 to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So here's this amazing announcement, this, this communique from glory via this majestic angel. And Zechariah responds to this angel the way we often respond when God speaks to us. Through his word, through the counsel of another believer, he has a little trouble. His faith has taken leave of him in this moment. <clears throat> it's not that it wouldn't be awesome to be part of, he's thinking, what you're saying, but uh, I'm an old man. I'm an, I, I, how is this even going to happen? He says in verse 18, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. He's like, how can I know this is true? Can you give me some proof? Can you give me some kind of validation that I know this is true? Listen, here's a pro tip. If an angel comes to you, try not to tick him off. Try not to insult the, the angel. Here's what the angel says, verse 19. He says, try to hear the tone in his voice, all right? He says, uh, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. And then he says, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. This angel gives Zechariah a nine-month timeout. He just shuts his mouth. He is mute for the entire duration of his wife's pregnancy. Nobody around him would understand why. Now, lest we assume this is punishment, I want us to ponder a couple things. I want you to understand something about the period of Zechariah's silence while all this is going on. We never see that he's frustrated by the silence. We never see that he's angry about it. Now, probably he was in the very beginning, but something happens 
over that period of time? How does he spend his days? While mute, perhaps he notices things that he did not notice before. You've heard it said that when somebody loses one of the senses, the other senses are heightened. Maybe his vision became illuminated. Maybe he started to see things, the handiwork of God. Maybe his hearing became heightened. Maybe he started to hear truth like he never had before. Maybe, who knows? And he has perhaps during that time an awareness of God that would just go through the roof. His own voice of protest at this point, gone. He can't interrupt. He can only listen. He can only respond internally to the voice of God. And over the months of his silence, what does he do? He watches his wife's belly grow, just like the angel foretold. And he's able to reflect on God's plan. And he sees what God is doing. And a gratitude fills him. And his unbelief fades away. And he experiences healing and restoration and reconciliation with the will of God. He senses direction. He begins to see the big picture. There's a uniformity now with the Lord. And so that silence is preparing him for nine months to a major, major decision. And it is a big deal because in that culture, in the ancient Near East, the name of the firstborn son was a big deal. It came from the family of the father. You didn't name the kid, you know, Arbuckle or Herman or whatever. It had to come from the dad's side. That was tradition. And the entire community was involved in this. They would all get together. They go, oh, this is a good name. All oh, this, you know, this is, this is a relative. This was a strong relative of yours. Maybe we should name him after the father. And they would all decide these things. For them to follow the angel's directive would be a problem because there was nobody in Zechariah's family named John. It wasn't a single John. And so when the son is born and Elizabeth complies with what the angel told her husband, she, I can see her presenting this son to these people that are surrounded because it was always a community event when a firstborn son comes along and she presents him, this is our son, John. And then the cacophony. Then the buzz, then the protests, and the jabbering, and the jawing. They object. And it says in Luke 1.62, And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. We should call him Zechariah. Don't you think so, Zechariah? Now here's Zechariah in the corner. He's been quiet for nine months. Hasn't made a peep. Suddenly he becomes very animated. Verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet. I could just see Zechariah. He's looking for something to write on. Finally, he gets a, a slate and he starts writing on there. And what does he write? He writes, his name is John. He's been quiet for so long, he has had it. He's not about to tolerate ignorance on the part of somebody else. That's what got him in this situation. And at that very moment, something happens. Because the name John means something. You know what the name John means? Yohanan. What does it mean? It means Yahweh has shown favor. Yahweh has provided. And we read in verse 64, immediately his mouth, Zechariah's mouth, was loosened. It was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke. And what comes out of his mouth after nine months of nothing? What is the first utterance that he makes? It says, he spoke blessing God. 
blessing God. Worship comes forth. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be for the hand of God was with him? Here's a couple things that we learned from this passage right here. First of all, in your notes, silence leads us to worship. It leads us to worship. When we are still before the Lord, he brings us to a place where we can really bless his name, where we can really praise him. And then silence leads us to boldness. Zechariah spoke out in the face of everything their tradition hold dear. This would have flown against the cultural norms of that day. But he boldly said, no, I will obey the Lord. This is what his name will be. He will bring glory to our God. He was bold. And this drew the people's attention to God's plan. Because they respond by asking this question, what is this kid going to be? And now something's working in their heart that might prepare them for the ministry of John. Because in your notes, silence causes us to focus on God and his plan. And it produces the same result in those around us. So I want to close by asking you this question. What noise is distracting you from the voice of God right now? Is it a situation? Is it a trial? Is it a distraction? Is it a dalliance with worldliness? Is it the sound of your own voice? Is it too much busyness with even the good things? even church things that might keep us from hearing what God wants to impart to us personally. That's a question that Zechariah had to come face to face with. He was a priest. He served at the temple. He offered the evening incense. He was important to the ministry of the one true God. And yet God had to get his attention. God wants your attention. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? O most holy God, you are exalted in the heavens. There is no equal to you. You are above all. There is no other name under your heaven by which men are saved but the name of Jesus because he alone is worthy. You alone are worthy, Lord Jesus. And you have shown yourself 
to be so in so many ways. You give us breath. You give us life. You take care of us. You give us sustenance. You are our healer. Jehovah Jireh. God, there's so much to thank you for. I thank you for the good people in this church. I thank you for the privilege of being their pastor. I thank you for the privilege of opening your word together. I thank you that you have looked after us. You have met our needs. I thank you for the wonderful celebratory news this week of our brother Todd, whom you spared his life, God, and we give you glory for that. God, what purpose do you have for us today, each one of us? Help us to listen to your great heart. May what matters to you matter to us. May what grieves you grieve us. We want to see with your eyes, hear with your ears, touch people with your hands that they might know and serve and listen and follow your voice as well. And I pray a blessing upon everybody here today. Guide us in our journey of encountering your voice in a deeper, more intimate way. And we pray this in Jesus' name.